Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Mark, how's it going? Yeah, terrific. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's we're finally getting together after after all these years. And as it turns out, you have a brand new book, so we'll be talking about that a lot. Um, when did, when did uh, Shelter from the Storm come out? Released on March 14th, so uh, fairly recent. Really excited to, to have it out. Uh, started writing it as I came out of government and, and really felt like that there was a, a great success story to be told and how you can actually use uh, keep your small government principles in government uh, and actually be successful. That's kind of a unicorn story because I, is. I, I as, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, being a cynic of of positive government action, that um, all the incentives were aligned for you to not do the right thing, and that's that's a key part of this story is how you, your economics background um, allowed you, and I'm sure you had friends in high places that must have protected you at no, a certain some, yeah. extent, but you. You knew that there was a wrong way to do it, and you resisted all the natural tendencies of, of government bureaucrats to just do what the interests want them to do. Yeah, I guess I should preface with, because I, there is a danger in the story of feeling like, well, if we just got, you know, cloned me or you and got us in all the right positions, government worked fine. And that's not the story. Yeah. <laughs> there I, were, I hope that's not that's the not strategy. The, that's we'll not the strategy. The strategy is you still should shrink as much as government every opportunity you should get uh, and, and do it re- without remorse as quickly as you can do it. Uh, but it is also a story of you know how if you find yourself in these situations, how economics is a useful framework, uh, how understanding how incentives work. Uh, and I do think as libertarians, we can be more effective at constraining government if we know how it works. Yeah. Uh, and so some of it is a plea of as long as these positions and these programs exist, I would rather have people who are skeptical of government in them than not yeah. because someone's going to be there. Uh, that in no way – you know, again, you know, I ran the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Well, of course, I don't think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac should exist. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to exist in that somebody else's conversation, uh, then these are the kind of things you should do. Uh, and I'm at heart really what I would call an Article One constitutionalist, which is if you're in the executive branch, Congress makes the big decisions. And you should just not second guess that. Uh, if you are in the public or you're a public intellectual, yes, you argue whether Congress, what Congress should do. If you're in the executive branch, no, you carry out what Congress has told you to do, unless it's blatantly unconstitutional. A um, a laudable position that perhaps very few administrative um, officials embrace. It's uh, probably more lawless than I even expected it to be, to be yeah. frank. And again, you know, I but, you know, I also would say, on the other hand, um, I found running the agency that, A, grounding what we were doing in the statute and just repeating ad nauseum that we're following the statute, implementing the law, that it brought the employees together. And because I think one of the hardest things, and certainly as a libertarian, sure, most probably most of the federal government, there's no way I could run it. Like, you know, sending URI to DEA, it's probably not going to work out even if we tried. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was an agency where I could um, channel the statute channeled the mission in a way where the employees could relate and get behind it. And I also found that sitting across the table, um, maybe I'll say as an, as an aside, um, boy, it is shocking if you run an agency just how much 
if not outright spin deception and lies you are subject to on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, it, it takes a special skill to kind of just yeah. be constantly lied to. So for good or bad, I've developed that skill. Um, but one of the things that's interest, was interesting to me and some pleasant surprise is if you're sitting across the table from a lobbyist, 99 times out of 100, they ask you to do something, you're just like, well, that's really nice, but I don't have the legal authority to do that. They don't yeah. really know where to go with it. Like I was rarely asked to say, well, who cares? Do it anyhow. Yeah. It And it also is a great, uh, another theme of the book is if you approach this, that your job is following the law, you save a lot of bandwidth and time. Because once you project that um, you are willing to bend the law, that it's really just a constant negotiation of your surrender. Whereas, you know, you, you know mo I think a lot of government officials go wrong by not seeing that the law is a shield for them. They, 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 can, they can stop getting pulled into different things. Now, uh, we were an independent agency at the time that I ran, so you had that insulation. Uh, I had come out of Vice President Pence's office, so I had allies in the White House. Uh, so, in, you know, I had worked on Capitol Hill. I, I you know, also was a you know, public choice student, so I understood kind of the role of interest groups and, and kind of their function. And I was willing, you know, I, I'm slightly stubborn by nature, maybe not as stubborn as the typical libertarian, but probably compared to the overall population, I can be stubborn. And so I can take a bit of a beating. Uh, I think one of the harder parts of being in government, most people rightly want to be friendly and pleasing. And you, you cannot function successfully in government with that because 99% yeah. of what you'll hear, you know, is on the pro bailout side, the pro subsidy side. There is no almost no voice on the other side as you run government, which is one reason I think it's important that if you are a libertarian who has policy expertise, send a comment letter, lean in, because maybe you don't make a difference, but you will be the only person probably that representing that position. And often the agencies will just sort of look at it and say, I don't know, maybe that actually maybe we should take that into account. But if you don't, again, 99 percent of the rest of it's going to be all one sided self-serving and you have to have some degree of confidence in what you're doing to, to you know question so for instance a chapter of the book talks about in 2020 how the mortgage servicing industry wanted a bailout now i looked at the data didn't see any rationale for it uh it was ultimately under the fed's position i'll say as an aside um the federal reserve uh, they had called me, uh, then Governor Brainerd, who's now at the White House, uh, Governor Quarles. They had a facility set up, a so-called 13-3 facility. They were ready to bail out the mortgage servicers, but they needed Treasury to, to approve it. And Treasury was just, eh, we're not so sure. And Treasury would come to me uh, on the data. And so the Fed and many others in the industry looked at me as the obstacle to it, which was not completely inaccurate. Uh, so a lot of abuse. I had the Financial Times, Bloomberg people publishing things that I should be run out of town and fired and tarred and feathered and all these things. And again, pretty much nobody writing, almost nobody writing, hey, he's right. We shouldn't do these bailouts. So while I uh, while I understand some of the pressure on this administration from the recent bailouts, I still think it's the wrong decision. Yeah. And I still think that they could have found other ways to do it. But I'm also 100% sure that 99% of the pressure they're getting, you can imagine like Silicon Valley Bank, who some of their um, depo uninsured depositors are, you get calls from like famous people, you get calls, you know, and 99% of it's like, you know, rescue us or bad things will happen. And there's a real risk aversion on the part of government bureaucrats to do that. So, you know, again, 
you got to be strong. But again, the, the, we should not count on randomly getting the right person in the job because it just doesn't happen that often. Yeah, it doesn't happen, and and the as you point out, the incentives are all wrong. I, 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 I love to tell my my fellow libertarians, um, you know, particularly sort of academic economists. We both come out of the George Mason University tradition. That I, I think it's actually good to to spend a little bit of time in government. Don't don't spend too much time yep. because you might become part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's that stubbornness and that that framework that we have um, both both Hayek and Buchanan, we were talking about this before we went live. Um, it's good to see how the process actually works. And I think, uh, you know, libertarians have this have this theoretical framework as to how government works, but just seeing the, the natural tendency of people wanting to please who's ever loudest oh, is, yeah. it's, I'm sure there's an economic theory for this, but until <laughs> you see it, you don't appreciate the fact that um, you know, the squeaky wheel gets grease, and particularly when these are really powerful people yeah, pushing absolutely. on you, um, well, and it's I think something else. One of the ways that being sometime in government also kind of helps you identify the Achilles heel, and let me kind of give you an e- example. Um, so, you know, Fannie and Freddie largely dominate the mortgage market because their funding costs are lower than everybody else's. So if you can squeeze that spread that they have over everybody else, you make a big difference. So I remember very early on, I had made some comments about, you know, we're not going to ever bail them out again, not on my watch. And so I was having a meeting with a bunch of Wall Street guys, and one of them says, well, you know, respectfully, Mr. Director, you know, I think you need to be more cautious. You know, you you made some comments and spreads had increased 10 basis points and such. And then, you know, after the meeting breaks up, I'm turning to one of my colleagues and I was like, 10 basis points, damn, we're halfway there. Because again, if you can just kind of narrow that. And so something where you would almost sure lose in a full frontal assault, you figure out how to flank. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of what, and if you're not having an experience in government, you don't necessarily know what's the path of least resistance. How do you, if you, how do you, you know, you're not going to get in the front door. How do you go on the back door? And again, unless you've learned the maze, you're going to try to, you know, do an amphibious assault in a way that's going to like you're going to get bloodied. Yeah. Whereas, so again, learning it, I think you can make you more effective. And again, I understand that um, there's something fun and exciting about trying to charge, you know, the front with the waving your flag. And but at the end of the day, are you, are you getting there? Are you getting the job done? You know, and, and I think that that was. I mean, to me, this is an important message for libertarians. It's an important message. Like when there was criticism of me in the in the press and other places, and I felt like I wanted to punch back, and I would always stop and ask myself, "Does this further my objective?" Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, I hate to put it too much military terms, but if your objective is to take that hill, you, do you really care how you take it? You care that you take it, right? And that, to me, I feel like a lot of libertarians will get caught up in, well, you know, if I can't do it exactly my way, or if I can't do it where I can brag about it. Um, then I'm not going to do it. Whereas, uh, you know, I always channel the old Reagan thing about like, you can get a lot done in Washington if you don't care, it takes credit. And so stuff like that of like, I care about being successful. And so the book, in some sense, there are parts of it that are really are a roadmap. And if you happen to be, by circumstance, finding yourself a libertarian in government, here are some lessons that I think will make you more effective. Yeah. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. 
go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Um, so I think we first met um, in 2008. I don't, I don't know exactly where or how, but it was probably that, um, that George Mason connection. But the specific thing we probably met on was opposition to the, the bailouts and TARP in 2008. And you, you reminded me that, that your former boss, uh, Vice President Pence, when he was a congressman, he was one of the few people that we invited <laughs> yeah. to the um, what was essentially an anti-bailout rally that, that became sort of the biggest Tea Party event that we would have. Because um, we didn't want politicians, but if we were going to have a couple, it was going to be people that stuck their necks out. So it it was speaking of being uncomfortable and libertarian, being opposed to bailouts in 2008, you were on the Hill at the time. Yeah, I was working for Senator Shelby, who uh, led the opposition in the Senate yeah. to, to the bailouts. We only got about 25 votes, but yeah. there were 25 votes in the Senate against the TARP. Um, you know, Which I, was extra remarkable because it was a Republican doing a- Absolutely. It. And, you know, there were a few, I think, Senator Tester voted against it. But, you know, the opposition, it split the Republicans, and that's better than having them all united. Uh, you know, Senate, you know, then House member, but but later Vice President Pence likes to say he was the first House member to come out publicly against the TARP. And it was sort of fun at the White House in that when we were vetting nominees and he had, he had tasked me, and I actually talk a little bit about how we ended up with Jay Powell. Um, he had said to me, you know, Mark, I, I oppose bailouts then. I oppose them now. And I'm tasking you with trying to make sure we minimize any nominees that get through want to do bailouts. Clearly, there's some areas where I failed to stop all of that from happening. And I do actually think in candor, uh, the book, I do try to honestly talk about trade-offs and where I might have fallen short in some places and where I took risks and stuff like that. So, you know, there is a risk of it all looking like a Monday morning quarterback, but there were gambles, there were missteps. And again, I try to be upfront about some of those, even if I probably focus more on what worked well. Yeah. Um, it does feel to me like um, maybe we've learned almost nothing since 2008. And and I wanted to get your um, hot take on, on Silicon Valley Bank. And because and, in, in a certain sense, this all seemed... 100% predictable. Absolutely. And I, I, I have said, you know, I um, I wrote a number of things as Dodd-Frank was being passed, saying this would institutionalize bailouts, not end them. Uh, I wrote a number of things when Jenna Illen was being considered for Fed chair, saying, you know, she is of that Geithner-Bernanke bailout philosophy. So if you want bailouts, she's your girl. Uh, and I, let me be clear, I would have been delighted to be wrong on all of that. Uh, but it's turned out to be right that Dodd-Frank does not end bailouts. It's institutionalized it. It's institutionalized ad hoc behavior. Uh, and again, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I thought so much of the 2008 crisis was wrongheaded in a disaster that I wanted to show in the book how you respond to a crisis in a smarter way, in a more constrained, small government, volunteer way. Um, but I do feel like that the wrong lessons were learned. The lessons that you know, the current Yellen and company have taken out is that, you know, act quickly and throw a lot of money at it. And, you know, I think that has undermined the situation. Uh, you know, I but I said this for a long time, rolling President Bush out there on TV to say, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to calm the markets is anti-calming. Yeah. And the same thing this time around, I, for the life of me, don't know why they thought rolling Biden out to talk about you know, telling people the banking system. I got tons of calls of people after the 
Biden's speech asking me, is the banking system okay? Who weren't paying attention to before. It's the exact opposite effect. Yes. And, and so it's, um, this is why, again, I go to the, um, you know, having been a public choice student and having watched government for a long time, I think you're much more effective at it if you understand its limitations. Yeah. Uh, and even those perhaps on the other side uh, of the aisle who are more optimistic about what government can accomplish would be better off if they recognize the limits of what government can accomplish. It's fascinating. Like if you're a if you're a, an honest uh, progressive, I won't use the word liberal because I, I'd love to someday rehabilitate that. Yes, word. we're taking that back. Um, but the the bailouts always advantage the the insiders, the politically connected, Absolutely. the well heeled, and and what we've now done is we've. Um, privatized profit but socialized risk and and dodd frank but but everything we've done since then oh yeah yeah is is just it it doesn't help people it helps the machine that perpetuates um all of these dynamics you know including um all the money printing and artificially low interest rates and all the things that have led us to this point. Absolutely, and I and I am a bit critical of the monetary choices that were made in in the crisis. Even if you thought, you know, we were experiencing a widespread financial market distress in March 2020. So even if you thought that the Fed should have helped provide a sort of lender of last resort, that the necessity of that was certainly done by the end of April or May of 2020. You know, in part of the Part of the problem is even when there's a justifiable argument for the Fed to intervene, they stay way too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they stay long enough that it gets embedded in asset prices. Um, you know, I regularly during 2020 was saying the past, like, listen, we don't need this kind of stimulus for the housing market. You know, and again, their view is, you know, we're here. They see the risk as a bit asymmetric for, for the Fed and for Treasury. The, and, and sadly, this is almost regardless of who personally using those seats. Uh, one point I make in the book is that, uh, you know, the Fed changes the governors more than the governors change the Fed. Yeah. And I really saw that particularly with like Randy Quarles, where you really just see the institution take over. Uh, and even though you, people forget that Powell, when he was a, just new to the Fed, was very critical of some of QE when Bernanke was doing it. I'm like, boy, he's got religion on it now. He's completely bought in. And I think that is a function of being so much deep in these organizations that you lose any ability to have objectivity in your, again, group think uh, is a real big problem at these organizations. Isn't it also, it, it's kind of a house of cards because okay. ultimately the solution is is going to be painful. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm probably abusing the phrase here, but um, during our last inflationary um, crisis in the 70s, you know, Hayek called it having a tiger by the tail yeah and so you get in there and you're like wow this is this is going to be a mess when the bills come due and your incentive at that point is kick the can down the road it it is and while you know i begrudgingly perhaps will give jay powell a slight amount of credit for taking inflation seriously he could have avoided it by never kind of creating the that's a bubble in the first place yeah uh, and obviously, I'm, I don't want to take the the fiscal authorities, you know, and some of the spy, spending off of the map, because that was a contributor. But certainly, the Fed allowed it to be on, monetized the, the the deficit spending, and so again, you, we wouldn't have to be going through this pain if we had never created the mess to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there is no way of getting out of it but painfully, and I think that's unfortunate. But um, you know, and 
the frustrating thing is if you try to raise these issues on the way in, you know, people were just like, well, what are you talking about? You know, I, you know, we mentioned the Mason. I remember uh, when I was in grad school, uh, Professor Wagner always liked to say that uh, at a 10% rate of discount, seven years is half of forever. <laughs> and the point being is, I hate to say it, but it's awfully rational for a lot of people. You know, I, I kind of say uh, that, you know, there is no institution in America with a shorter time horizon than the House of Representatives. And the fact is, it's rather rational in Washington to not care about even the median term. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think part of the role of libertarians and the public is to remind people that sooner or later, you know, the, the, the long term does catch up with you. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. I wonder what uh, Richard Wagner and James Buchanan, professors of yours and mine, who uh, wrote an important book on democracy and deficit, I wonder what they would think six trillion dollars later um because it seems like um any any pretense that we care about all of the problems created by by deficits i mean it should be sort of obvious by now but um, i see no change in washington in terms of like maybe we shouldn't spend another trillion i think part of the rhetoric where we have lost on is except for maybe a few members of Congress, most look at the spending per se as a good thing. Like for them, you know, okay, you you know, I don't want to have to borrow, but the spending is so important for whatever purpose. And I do think we need to shift the conversation back to spending, spending, spending. Because that's, I mean, tax revenues have gone up almost a fourth since Joe Biden's been in office. So we're not we're not having deficits because we're not bringing more money in. We're bringing record amounts of revenue in. Uh, the question is, we've spent even more in getting that on a sustainable path, I think, is critical. But I do think that as long as the battle is just about deficits without really being explicit about what spending and not only that, it's not a question of can we afford it? It's a question of is this spending itself a good thing? Yeah. And, and you and I would probably most of it say, not only is it not a good thing, but it's actually doing harm in many instances. And I think that's the battle. I, I'm not sure I'd even say we've lost the battle because I'm not even sure we fought it. Yeah. You know, yes, we're, you know, libertarians, uh, Cato, Reason, many others, free the people, all good at pointing out a handful of examples, bridge to nowhere, that kind of thing. But I don't think we've really convinced the American people that much of federal spending is actually harmful. There hasn't there hasn't been a, a real fight about this since the the untimely demise of the Tea Party. But That's right. of course the other half of that coin, and I, I have to sort of joyously report that Senator Mike Lee recently tweeted out and the Fed. Yes. Because um, you know, there's only three ways to spend money you don't have. You, you can raise taxes. Borrow, print it, yeah. You can borrow or you can print and and printing sort of backed up not by Keynesian economics, but by modern monetary theory, is now like this magical sauce that we can just <laughs> sprinkle on everything. And that that is the the more insidious, it, destructive absolutely. thing today than even even the crazy spending. But it, you would have to have like a two-front 
floor. You, on that. you do. And the fact that the Fed has essentially monetized the debt keeps interest rates at a level where, I mean, it used to. The last 12 months, obviously, interest rates have been um, very high for government borrowing, at least relative to the last 20 years. But, you know, they suppressed interest rates so long, again, financial repression. And you don't see that this shifts savings into government. It shifts savings away from productive activities. You know, there was a real reason why so much of the Great Recession was extremely weak productivity growth, which, um, you know, to paraphrase something Larry Summers has said several times, productivity is it. If you care about economic growth, productivity is the single most important thing you should obsess about. And the fact that we continue to shift investment, and again, most of what the government does today is redistributive. You know, people talk about investments, and again, you and I share a skepticism over whether uh, the Inflation Act and Reduction Act would be another just whole package of cylindras. But the truth is, is the vast majority of what the government does is simply take a dollar from you and give a dollar to me. Mm-hmm. And there's no productivity growth in that. And so getting um, getting the, the conversation to focus on how do you grow living standards, there's almost no interest in that. It's all become zero-sum thinking in Washington. Not that it ever really deviated much from that in the past anyhow. So, so let's go back specifically to the book because I want to I want to compare um, what happened in 2008, particularly in terms of uh, housing market bailouts, Fannie and Freddie, versus what you did, because the the, the work that you did in 2008 is directly related to mm-hmm. to what you did as as the head of F. FHA. Federal Housing Finance Agency. Thank you. FHFA. Um, Yeah, so I was on the banking committee in the Senate and and leading up, I really joined in 2001, but was there in 2008. And we created FHFA in 2008 because Fannie and Freddie failed. We actually have been trying since 2003. Uh, Unsurprisingly, being Washington, you can spend years warning people about impending crises and nobody listens. And that was the case with Fannie and Freddie. So we set up a regulatory structure that would hopefully constrain Fannie and Freddie from throwing off our economy and costing a lot of money. And so there's kind of a couple of elements. Uh, one, we made sure, so I guess I should start with, when I walked in the door at FHFA in April 2019, Fannie and Freddie were leveraged 1,000 to 1. So a strong breeze would have blown them over. Uh, and so we started immediately building capital. Do, do things like that exist in free markets? <laughs> Nobody has that kind of leverage in a free market. You know, this is a great company. If you look at like companies that aren't backed by the government, they usually have leverage of maybe two to one. Even like your typical hedge fund, which you know people like to criticize, hedge, typical hedge fund is two to one leverage. Fannie and Freddie, thousand to one leverage. Your typical commercial bank, ten to one leverage. The, because as you know, and, and that's after we fixed it over the last yeah, decade. So, you know, yeah. so you don't have to be, you know purely believe in Migdigliani Miller, but the free market would not support this kind of leverage because your cost of funding would shoot up to where it was you know higher than your debt. And let me say the Migdigliani Miller theorem actually does largely hold across financial institutions and across companies uh, loosely. But that said. So Fannie Freddie had the kind of leverage that you would never see in a free market, and it was because of that implied guarantee that was there. So we immediately started building capital. We immediately started de-risking. There was a sliver of borrowers where we were putting loans into, you know, very little down payments with people who had very poor credit scores, and that my predecessor, the, the Obama folks, had just expanded the credit box again, setting people up for failure. Uh, and so I immediately trim that back and we really immediately try to get people in a sustainable situation 
Uh, we had to fix the agency. We had to fix the companies. There was a lot of morale problems at the agency. The corporate cultures at Fannie and Freddie were horrible. There, quite frankly, in my view, had been very little to fix them during their decade plus of conservatorship. So I had 11 months and the job before COVID hit. And thank God I had that because we were able to substantially improve the companies going into COVID. And to maybe kind of illustrate this, when I walked into the door in April 2019, Fannie and Freddie had between them $6 billion in capital to, to back $6 trillion in risk. Um, they Their losses during COVID were on the range of about $6 billion to $8 billion. So if we hadn't started already, they would have failed. Uh, I know in Washington, you don't really get a lot of credit for stopping failures from happening. You let them happen and ride into the rescue and pretend you're the Calvary. Uh, but we stopped. We we really did make the changes that made sure Fannie and Freddie did not fail this time around when they failed last time. And we made hard choices. And I can tell you, a lot of criticism from the mortgage industry, a lot of criticism from, you know, a lot of people in Washington were unhappy with what we were doing. But again, I had the support of the White House. Uh, and I'm also, again, a slightly stubborn guy who's like, we're going to do what the law requires. So we were able to get Fannie and Freddie in shape where they survived what was one of the worst, you know, the immediate housing downturn in March, April, May was brutal. And then, of course, the markets went up once the flood, Fed started flooding, you know, buying MBS and flooding the system. Uh, but we also looked at this and said, you know, we need to be able to set something up for homeowners where we would have a bridge. It, it, I'll say as a side, it is a it's a travesty how poorly how poorly our unemployment insurance system in this country is set up. Uh, and whether you think it should be there or not, and whether it should be run privately or state run, those are all important questions. But typically, if you lose your job, it's going to take you two, three, four months to get your unemployment check. And what we were facing is, for a lot of people, that means they're not paying that mortgage during that time. So we looked at this and said, even if you were a private business, and we really did look at this and say, how would a private business do this? And I think what we set up is forbearance programs, not forgiveness. We told people, we'll let you in and we'll give you essentially a free loan for a few months, but you were going to pay us back. And so we were generous on one hand because we were kind of stingy on the other. And again, we had to do that or else we would have been having to take over a lot of homes and mortgages in the middle of a pandemic, which certainly would have cost Fannie and Freddie money. So I really try to emphasize in the book, it wasn't charity, it was smart business. And the fact that lenders who weren't covered did this, copied what we were doing. So purely private lenders who made loans, held them in portfolio or private label, they copied our model and did what we did when they had a choice to do completely the opposite. And it's because we approached it with, you know, what's the responsible way to minimize losses? We didn't approach it as a giveaway. You may recall early in COVID, there were all sorts of calls for free mortgages, free rent. We said no. We, I mean, I didn't have the money to do it anyhow, but even if I did it, we wouldn't have done it. But we really wanted to set this up where we were helping people who needed it, but it was going to pay for itself. And to kind of put this in perspective, compared to the 2008 crisis, we helped twice as many people. We did it six times as fast, and it cost essentially zero, whereas in 2008, it cost approximately $30 billion. Now, I recognize $30 billion has become pocket change in Washington, but for me, it's real money, and you try to save everything you can everywhere you can. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. 
And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So one of, one of the big issues in 2008 was the focus on, on homeowners, or at least people with mortgages, um, versus people that had to pay rent. Yes. And the, you know, the, the un, ultimate unfairness of, of helping people that almost by definition are, are better yeah. off than, than people stuck with rent. There was a, there was a big issue with lockdowns um, almost by definition of the types of jobs that were banned. Um, We saw early on that only about 40% of the big spring wave of job losses were people with mortgages. I mean, you know, the people who work in bars and restaurants are predominantly renters. Let me say, and I think this is, you know, obviously I would like to see a much smaller government, but I do think that libertarians could make considerable progress by simply taking the position of if we start with getting rid of subsidies for rich people, and upper middle income people, we can shrink the government considerably. Like I am comfortable with prioritizing let's other than, you know, you don't want to set up programs for poor people that punish them if they work or create all sorts of perverse incentives. But let's set aside design and simply say, the thing I'm least offended about by government is when we help poor people. Mm -hmm. What I'm most offended about is when we help people who don't need it. And one of my takeaways from 2008 was we showered benefits and you know, I refinanced. You might have refinanced, you know, post 2008, 2008, 2009 period. And we all saved money, but we didn't need it. So benefits were showered on a bunch of people who needed not need it. And then it was completely ignored that people who were on the margin who would it could have with a little assistance been kept in their house. So I was pretty adamant with we're going to focus on those who actually need it. And the way we paid for the assistance, for instance, was we had a small fee on high-income refinancing, which you could completely avoid if you didn't do a Fannie and Freddie loan. So it was not a tax, completely avoidable. And then we used that to cross-subsidize uh, people who had lost their jobs, you know, people who actually were hitting you know, a rough patch, and again, kept them in their homes. And so again, did that within the system, did it voluntarily, um, but again, focused on those most in need. And while we had both the 2008 as well as various disaster, there had been homeowner programs in Sandy, Maria, Katrina. There was no renter. And so because we immediately looked at this in March and said, March 2020, and said, this is going to hit renters hard. We need to create something for renters. So I should say, and I talk about it in the book, we weren't part of the CDC eviction moratorium process. You know, we weren't even asked in that. And I kept my distance. I don't, from, I don't think you'd be allowed to talk the, to me exactly. if, if that was true. So we were not part of that. Uh, I give you my views on that in the book. So what we set up was a voluntary program where we would pause the mortgage payment for the landlord if the landlord agreed to essentially pause rent during that time for the tenant. And of course, they could continue to evict for bad behavior and other things. So we said, you know, we'll have a deal with you. We'll, we'll help you if you help somebody else. Completely voluntary. Nobody was made to take it. Uh, and again, unlike the moratorium that was imposed on everybody. So we tried to make sure everything we were doing was purely voluntary. Did these two programs coexist at the same time or um, did, actually did the, theirs cancel out we yours? started earlier so we actually sent up rental programs in march 2020 that were later incorporated in the cares act and then the cares act um created a moratorium on federally uh, assisted properties and then that expired after three months so president trump didn't come in i don't think it was august maybe 2020 where the eviction moratorium was put in place so the eviction moratorium was not put in place until our programs had been up for months and I also kind of talk about like the importance of being very 
data-driven. You may remember there were all sorts of predictions of eviction tsunami and this and that. And, you know, we looked at the data. We heard predictions of, like, you know, 50% of people would take mortgage forbearance. We looked at the data and said, we don't know how you're getting that. So we really tried to be very data-driven and said, you know, what's the real parameters here? And I think it allowed us to make better decisions and it allowed us to resist panic and this is you have this every crisis you know you had it in 2008 you had it now with these banks and you had it then in 2020 where you hear the most ridiculous outlandish things that don't have any basis like how is that even possible you know yeah. and so we saw that you know claimed uh, you know I, I talked a little bit about myself uh I, you know at least until a year ago i was an accidental landlord as i say i bought a property 1999 in the district of columbia and lived in it for 10 years and kept it as a rental property uh, you know, I probably lost 50% of the rent in 2020 because of COVID. And I eventually sold it at the top of the market because I felt it was a good time to get out. Um, but, you know, most landlords, some months they would send me a third of the rent. You know, I mean, most landlords try to work with people. Um, obviously, uh, there are a lot of ma landlords where they are on a very tight budget. And, and, and that's a lot of difficulty there. But that's why we made sure everything we did was voluntary, but we're, I'm also up front in that between, you know, uh, what we were doing at Fannie and Freddie and HUD, maybe we covered 40% of renters. I mean, the plus is in the sense that, um, you know, half of renters live in properties under five units. They, uh, most renters actually live in a property without a mortgage. Then these are properties that have passed down. So fortunately, most, most landlords have nothing to do with the government. Yeah. Good. I don't want them to have anything to do with the government. But, you know, it did force us to try to find some creative solutions. You know, I, I suspect there would be a lot of informal agreements of forbearance with, with landlords because it, it just makes sense. Like it's um, that reasonableness is probably the best way to, to find like win-win solutions because there's a lot of costs. And yeah, and, I mean, I, you know, I'm having losing been a, a having been a landlord. If you get a good tenant. Yeah. Because on the other hand, one bad tenant could just blow everything up for you. And uh, I lament that particularly in 2020, but there has just become this trend to demonize landlords in a way, whereas, you know, I consider housing, you know, and basic necessity, shelter of life, people who provide basic necessities should be honored and cheered. Yeah. Uh, and so I consider being a landlord a noble profession. Uh, and again, most landlords I know, and myself included at the time, you're going to work with people. If you have a good tenant, you're going to work with them. The tenants who don't get worked with are bad tenants. Yeah. You know, and again, we kind of miss that. And, and that's, that's not to say, sure, every profession has a couple of abusers in it. And you should deal with that directly. But that's not by just like, you know, there's there's certainly some percentage of renters who are bad actors, just as there's some percentage of landlords that are bad actors. But I don't think we want to paint a broad brush on anybody. So I noticed that you go back and forth in the book. And this is a particular um, it's more than a nitpick, but um, <laughs> it's the, the difference between Blaming the pandemic for economic disruption versus blaming an explicit government decision to lock down the economy, something yeah. that no one's ever done in the history of the universe before. So I, I, I prefer to, like, obviously a serious pandemic would create economic fallout and it would create disruption and, and job loss and, and all that stuff. Yeah. But this this was a man-made Absolutely thing. 100%. 100%. Uh, uh, or a government-made thing. Yeah. Because the book is written from where I was sitting, I largely left issues outside of my, you know, this was the hand I dealt regardless of how the hand came to be, mm -hmm. was, was kind of the approach in the book. Um, and so a fair criticism and nitpick, if you want, is to say, Mark, you never addressed the kind of, you know, elephant in the room. That's fair. 
Um, partly because you know, again, my point about like Article One, like you deal with what Congress has written, not what you want. Uh, I played the hand I was dealt, and in the role I was in, that to me was what the book is about. Which is a separate conversation of whether you know I don't get into any of the healthcare stuff, I don't get into any of the lockdowns, and that's and that is a very legitimate criticism. If you want, and it's not a overview of COVID book; it's an overview of what what I did when I was there. Yeah, um, but that's fair. And, and you had. I, I don't get to blame you no, as a fraud. representative of the Trump administration <laughs> for all the lockdowns. You, you, you can if you want, but I was well, in, you, had, you had no authority. I was over an that. independent regulator in 2020, yeah. so that that that's fair to say, and not part of the administration's independent regulator. But you know, I, if I was going to be devil's advocate, I would also say that you know, there's a lot of whether it's studies that have used cell phone data and other things. People started pulling back spending on restaurants and things before the lockdowns. So even without the lockdowns, which I think were unforgivable, there was a decline in economic activity. So that would have hit regardless of There what, surely would have been. There would have been, there would have been yeah. otherwise. Would yeah. it have been as bad? No. And, you know, I do talk about, for instance, in the book, how um, real estate trends and how many people were leaving areas where the schools were closed to go to where the schools were open. And a the theme of the book is to kind of have that market flexibility. So, you know, a top-down, one-size-fits-all national approach or a very centralized approach like China has taken, which, again, people forget China was applauded for their very centralized approach in 2020. But we've all seen what a disaster that is turned even worse than our approach, yeah. uh, despite, you know, the real knocks in our approach. So certainly a fair criticism is there are a number of questions I don't address. And that's largely because I'm, I'm sitting through the lens that yeah. I'm in the chair I'm in. You know, you mentioned China and one of one of my other big beefs, if you've watched this show at all, like the, the fact that um, the rest of the free world emulated China's response to COVID it's crazy. is just gobsmackingly crazy to me. Yeah. And you, you mentioned this, um, you know, when you were with Vice President Pence, that you did a lot of uh, China, China economic policy stuff. And you've you've gone from from more. I was very dovish at one point. You know, I certainly would count myself among those who, when China entered the WTO, who thought it would end up liberalizing. And of course, you, you know, you could always say, well, dang, it's different to G and they changed leadership and they did. But, you know, that doesn't speak much to the stability of the system. Right. One guy yeah. goes, one guy. But, you know, I think this is really hard in that, you know, you and I are old enough and I often say that to me, my, the two pivotal events of my college years were the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of apartheid. And it, those things make me somewhat hopeful because we really saw a world where, um, you know, it was went from unfree to free. And uh, one of the things I got to do with the vice president was go to the DMZ. And when you look across, I mean, you were literally standing on the dividing line between the free world and the unfree world. These things are real. We have yeah. evil empires in the world. But I don't think we figured out really how to address China. I mean, in a sense, the Soviet Union did a favor. They were very clearly evil. Um, China played us off that. And there were things that I certainly saw, some classified, some not. Since, For instance, I mean, I believe it's relatively well publicly documented that China rents slave labor from North Korea. Um, so, you know, you well could be buying a Chinese made good. And I'm an ardent free trader. But, you know, as David Bose likes to say when questioned, what's the big victory um, for libertarians? He likes to say the end of slavery. Well, there is slavery still in the world in many places. How do we deal with it? Do we buy goods that were produced with slave labor? We want to think not. Um, so I do think that China has presented a really a lot of tough questions for libertarians. And because unlike 
yeah, we, we gave, you know, we sold a little bit of grain to the Soviet Union, bought a little bit of oil. And that was kind of the extent of the trade. We've got a very ingrained relationship with China, you know, where, you know, technologically, you know, the social credit scoring, the spying, I mean, they're not, the Chinese Communist Party is not a good actor. And again, I don't have the solution or the answers, but I think this is a debate that libertarians really need to have is what should our be? Tell me, Matt, what, we, what should we do about China? I don't, I don't know. Like we were, we were pretty active um, exposing light on, on the abuses of the student protesters in Hong yes. Kong, for instance. And, um, and I thought that, that the light of day and, and, and public pressure and, and global denunciation was, was a powerful tool in combination with the economic incentives to, yeah. to trade with the rest of the world. And, and obviously she has a different agenda. Um, I, I mean, it breaks my heart to see that. I yeah. mean, Hong Kong's fallen off the news. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, know, no one. Well, they, they choked it off the news. Yes, ex- and, exactly. And to see that kind of come and go in our lifetime with just a kind of hiccup and, and barely kind of, you know, much of a response from the rest of the world is just, you know, again, I go back to that time in my youth when we saw freedom expanding. And, and now you really worry that there are margins where. Yeah. Where it's where it is sliding. Obviously, there's legitimate concerns about freedom here in America, but no. But 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 back to my original sure. point. I think I think one thing we could do is lead by example and by embracing Chinese style lockdowns and huge and, mistake. And agreed. we could do we could do an entire program on on the creeping uh, debanking that looks a lot like a social credit system. Yeah, the cho- the operation choke point. Many of these things. I mean, I wrote on this years ago, and it really is a threat. And obviously, the worst case of this was in Canada, where they stopped bank accounts from protesters. And you know, we there really are a lot of surveillance through the financial system. And Cato is currently my uh, colleague Norbert Michelle Nutter is doing a lot of great work on Fourth Amendment issues as it relates to financial services, financial privacy is incredibly important. And I do think we have to stand up as being the alternative to China. And yeah. sometimes, you know, I can't say it always won me friends, but I know I annoyed a lot of people within the White House when I regularly said, we can't out-China China. We need to have a different approach. We need to show the world, including China, why our approach is better. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I certainly had a lot of People who would argue to me that, well, you know, they're doing this, we should do that. I'm like, that's not how you want to counter it. And I will say, maybe it surprised people, we had those debates within the, the Trump White House. There, there were very, whether it was Mick Mulvaney or, or Larry Kudlow and myself and, and Mnuchin to a degree, I think we all made the case regularly that you're not going to beat China by being China. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there were, I don't need to name names, I think there, there were plenty of people on the other side of the debate. What I would say is at least you know, those were debates that were pushed and were had in the open. Um, and you win some, you lose some. And, you know, I, I often said at the White House that uh, if me being there meant that I uh, only lost eight out of 10 rather than nine out of 10, that was going to be worth it because those 10 things were, were really important. And, you know, you kind of have to have a sense of what's, an, what's, what's a worthwhile accomplishment or, you know, the, the, as we economists would say, to think at the margin, can you make a difference at the margin? Yeah, it shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise um, any constitutional conservative or libertarian that there were folks within any administration that were thinking that they could use power better than the other guys. And there's there's a disturbing trend. Yeah, absolutely, so-called national conservatism, which is just like um, it is the Chinese model, even though they would argue it's the opposite. And I think. I think we fight that. And I think we have to. And it's it's interesting because my, you know, without naming names, I think a lot of the people of that view 
have never really been in government. Um, and so they don't recognize that it looks a lot different when you're sitting there. And, you know, I, again, I was a bit of an outlier. I said every day in the White House, I'd tell people, listen, there's going to be a time in the near future when there's somebody I disagree with who's sitting in my seat. Do I want to leave them with more power or less? And less. And, and a lot of people got that. Uh, and again, I think the kind of, I know, I mean, for the left, they understand that even if they're only in power half the time, they think that the other half will be, there will be, will be nothing, will get rolled back and they'll just expand it. So I think it is very naive and very uninformed and quite frankly ignorant of how government actually works to think that simply getting the right person in there. Um, because again, you probably at FHFA where I was, to be slightly immodest, you were never going to get a more hardcore person than me there. Uh, and I lucked out by a number of factors getting even confirmed. I was probably probably the most free market person who's gone through the Senate in a long, in a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a lot of people in my back corner like the vice president. But you can't count on that. And even I kind of ran into like roadblock after roadblock. So I do think that despite what I think is a very successful story told in the book, we should take every opportunity to shrink government. Don't think about like, oh, I'm going to run it this time. And I would say one of the things that's probably really changed my mind that's maybe more, more hardcore, if you will, um, despite being an economist, maybe there's part of me that's an inner lawyer, in that I do feel like that because people build their lives around certain rules that people kind of create what a lawyer would say reliance interest in the status quo. And I would have said before I've spent an extensive time in government that the optimal would say, let's get rid of this program over five or six years so that you don't blow everything up. And I'm much more of the view now to rip the bandit off because if you give it time, it'll get reversed. People will fight. You know, the political economy of it will get harder than if you just pull the bandaid off. OK, we got to close with the most important aspect of this <laughs> book, which is uh, Keith a, or shout Brent? Out, no, uh, a shout out to the Grateful Dead. Well, you know, like you, I, I, you know, or as maybe George Bush once said, you know, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. Uh, you know, much of my college years was I had good fortune to spend a lot of that seeing the, the Grateful Dead, and you know, my, my dissertation, probably written in parking lots across America, really was very formative in my youth. But I also think, like yourself, I should kind of uh, admit and cop to that. Uh, you know, probably when I was a 14, 15, 16, a bit of a metalhead. So, you know, listen to my Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath, all the great ones. Any, any Russian there? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, the, I, I fell out of it for a while. And that the last time I saw Rush was Power Windows Tour. So I went a very long time without seeing them. But, uh, you know, and... You know, uh, speaking, I'm also another big fan of Triumph. So there's at least two good Canadian power trios that I like. But, you know, really was very much into heavy metal and hard rock and kind of transitioned into Grateful Dead and Jam Band and, you know, Fish and Widespread and many of these other bands and Goose, the newer generation of stuff. So a lot of great music uh, going on. I've always been a big fan of live music. Uh, you know, I also would say maybe it would surprise people, but. You know, the purest free market I ever really saw was a parking lot at a Grateful Dead show. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. and, you know, again, there were, you know, social mores and people would shame you on occasion or this and that, you know, and people would, you know, keep the scene clean and walk around with their trash cans and stuff. So there was a lot of, you know, slight paternalism, but it was that, you know, kind of 60s let it all kind of hang out vibe that I really loved. And, and again, it was a find your own path 
Uh, and I'm not trying to minimize. I mean, you know, when we were seeing the dead in the 80s and 90s, sure, there was a more than its fair share of sexism and homophobia and everything else that, that bothers society, too. But there was an openness to me um, that I just found thrilling. And, of course, I'm, I'm certainly the view that uh, Jerry Garcia is certainly, if not the best, the, you know, probably the best guitarist I've ever seen. And I feel very lucky. Um you know, things here and there, uh, saw a lot of Grateful Dead shows and still listen to that on occasion. And again, still very meaningful aspect of my life. He was kind of like, he, um, I've, I've watched that not so recent Grateful Dead series, Long Strange Trip. Yeah, the one from Amazon. Three or four years ago, good. and there, there were um, some interesting quotes from Jerry, and you realize just what a reluctant leader he was and, and how that made him a better leader because he didn't like to tell his community what to do, but you described this this very robust scene where, you know, in, in one sense it was technically lawless, but the rules were, were yeah. well enforced were. by the community um, because they, they cherished the sustainability of the community. So, so to me, it is a, is a libertarian It, it um, really is. It's, it's an Eleanor Olstrom and, and, and action community, and, and it really was. And I do feel like things had drifted. I remember very much... I think it was one of the Rolling Stones interviews when Jerry was kind of like, you know, I don't vote. It's the, you know, the evils, the lesser of evil is still evil. And, you know, they tell tales of how, you know, California politicians wanted to buy their, you know, voting list, their, mm -hmm. their mailing list. And they were like, no. And I do lament a little bit that I think the band has become more political since Jerry died. Yeah, Bobby's, Bobby's political, Jerry, was uh, right, rightfully um, not just skeptical, but like, Kept a distance of politics. And I miss that. I think yeah. that's kind of where the band should have been and should have stayed. And, and I kind of respected that. I never, I mean, it is slightly annoying, you know, now occasionally when you go to a concert and you feel like you're being lectured. I never felt like Jerry was ever lecturing me. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Be and, because he respected was, his community. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, and that was it. They respected his community. I mean, um, you know, to show how really old I am, I remember, in, in, um, you know, this kind of like, it was kind of expected, you know, and again, we were seeing the Grateful Dead during the Reagan years, you know, um, and so, but even then, it was relatively nonpartisan. Uh, and again, it was very, I mean, it was a community of ideology, but it was not an ideology of political power. And you would have never have seen Jerry cozy up with any politician or, or do, you know, concerts for politicians so and i and i do again i feel like the crowd has gotten a little too activist in its own mind and uh you know i've worked in politics for a long time a lot of friends who musicians you know I, there's, there's nothing that leads me to believe that they have a unique insight into politics or policy and again i've talked to a number of them they, yeah. they don't yeah yeah uh and so these are questions that you should always kind of you know follow yourself maybe i'll wrap up by and maybe you were the same thing but i was definitely that guy in college who had the question authority bumper sticker and i never stopped believing that you should question authority even when it's coming from me okay so let's shamelessly flack your book one more time shelter from the storm how Pub published by cato how a COVID mortgage meltdown was averted um I assume we can get this everywhere. Yep, uh, at Decatur website, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, everywhere fine books are sold. 
And if people want to check out your stuff, how do they find you? So they can go directly to the Cato website. There's a listing of many of my writings over the years, a uh, number of things there. So that's the first thing to do. And of course, you know, at, on Twitter at Mark Calabria. So uh, a lot of stuff online. And, you know, I'm reluctantly to say that the emails on the Cato website as well. So if you have something to disagree with, send it away. And if you're at a dead show, just follow you on Twitter because you'll discover that you're probably there too. I could say, look for me for Dead and Company tour. There'll be a, I'll set up a booth and maybe be selling books. Uh, you know, with each book, you'll get a kind veggie burrito, maybe. Well, try it. It might work. <laughs> that might work. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.